Hello, I'm Eric Sorensen, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, May 6th. On this Sunday, what is the cost of a cleaner environment from carbon pricing to pipelines? The Liberals are hearing it from the left and the right, and today, the Conservative Party and the Green Party will talk to each other. Then, peace is at hand on the Korean Peninsula. Or is it? Can North Korea's leader be trusted? Does President Trump deserve credit? And is there a role for Canada to play? And a look inside the Harper years from someone who was there. A former chief of staff has learned some lessons from the NAFTA to the limits of power in government. But first, the federal government is being buffeted from all sides over its climate policies, from pipelines to carbon pricing. Ottawa is intervening in the B.C. court case over pipeline jurisdiction, and Canadians will have to wait until the fall to learn the costs to households of carbon pricing. The Liberals are being hit from the left and the right about their policies, so joining us now from Vancouver is Conservative environment critic Ed Fast, and here in studio, Green Party leader Elizabeth May. I'll start with you first, uh, Mr. Fast. So the government is now saying that uh, they will tell you and Canadians about the impacts of carbon pricing, but not till September. Regardless of whether you hear about it now or then, what is the impact going to be? Well, the impact uh, of a carbon tax is yet to be determined. For the last year, we have been asking the government and asking them time and time and time again, what will be the cost of this carbon tax to the average Canadian family? There's been no answer. They cannot even tell us by how much our greenhouse gas emissions will go down when a $50 per megaton price on carbon is in place in 2022. What, so we're left what do without you think any will information. Happen? What do you think will happen with, uh, when, when you discover these numbers? I think what's going to happen is life is going to become more expensive for Canadians. Uh, the Trudeau government has not yet realized that you cannot tax your way to a clean environment. You just can't. When we look at Elizabeth. BC, which is where I am, you know that in, in BC, we've had a carbon tax for nine, ten years, and we've had virtually no reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And what has that tax done for, for British Columbians? Nothing. All right, Elizabeth May, you probably want to tackle a couple of the points just made yeah, by it. First of all, the, uh, British Columbia's carbon tax is one of the best designed and effective carbon taxes anywhere in the world. It stopped working when Christy Clark took Gordon Campbell. I mean, same party, right? Same political stripe. Right-wing BC government brought in a carbon tax that was very well designed. And the feature about it that's, that I think is really important is that it was revenue neutral. So whatever money was taken in in carbon pricing was reduced on the income tax side. So British Colombians were able to see that greenhouse gases were dropping and at the same time we had more money in our pocketbook because we were paying for more at the pump. It reversed itself in a very nice way and leveled out at a wash. Then Christy Clark came in and said, we're going to freeze it. We're not going to keep raising it every year. The reason you raise a carbon tax over time is that when it's working, which they do, your amount of carbon pollution that's available to tax is shrinking. If you want to keep the taxation level the same, then you're constantly raising it. So Sweden, which started a long time ahead of us, now has a $200 a ton carbon tax, and their economy is thriving. The effect of carbon taxes, and by the way, Greens prefer uh, something called fee and dividend, where we actually mail a check back to every Canadian based on their fair share of shifting pollution from income to pollution. So you tax pollution more, you tax income less. But I agree with that. We should be able to tell what's it going to cost, how well is it going to work. In fairness to the Liberals, 
a lot of that answer depends on what the provinces do. And province by province, there are different methods being used. And if a province is prepared to put a price on carbon, they have the autonomy under the Liberal plan to do so. The Liberals have a backstop, so in, in legislation right now, if a province says, no way, we're not taxing carbon, then the Liberals will put in place at the federal level a carbon price, and the money will be returned to the province. So and, what and, if the and, province and, doesn't and, give it back to the public? But you know, it's be, very hard to right. know how it's going to affect each individual household till we and, know what each province and, is doing. Ed, you jump in there. Fair, the federal government actually has this information. They know what the impact on the average Canadian family will be. How do we know that? We did an access to information request. We got back a document that clearly anticipated that they had that answer. But then when we got to the actual part that was giving the answer, what would be the impact on the average Canadian family? It was blacked out, redacted. So this is about a carbon tax cover-up by the federal government. They're not coming clean on this. At committee, they won't tell us. In the House of Commons, they won't tell us. And that should really concern all Canadians because now we're moving ahead with budget deliberations and a budget vote is looming. And in that budget, the government is imposing the carbon tax backstop. And we have no information as to what the impact on Canadians will be yeah. or what the impact on our environment will be. Now, really, what they should do, and here's where I agree with that, I don't see there's any reason to ever redact documents that the public has a right to see. What I know about the timing of the document where they black things out is that the information in that document is outdated. They probably want to make sure they have the up-to-date figures and share those. But I think people are smart. And if you say, okay, this was the snapshot of what a carbon tax was going to look like when it was being modeled under a different scheme where each province wasn't taking its own action. You have to figure that out. And right now, we don't know. If Doug Ford is elected in Ontario, then the way the carbon tax affects the average Ontario family now, under an Ontario and Quebec with California, they have a carbon market system that works very differently than the BC plan. So figuring out what it means for each household depends, and I really believe it's important, to keep it out of wash. Whatever money you take in from carbon pollution, you give back to individual Canadians so there is no impact at all. And that's a well-designed plan. That's the one we have in B.C. At, at but fast, you can't but, guess but, it but, but right that's now. But not, that's not happening right now. Carbon taxes across the Canada, whether it's cap and trade in Ontario and Quebec, or you look at the carbon tax in B.C., none of those revenues are going back to taxpayers. In fact, when the NDP yes, government came been. in, in British Columbia, they have definitely. been, and they, they, they aren't been. anymore. And my point is this. As governments come and go, as governments change, eventually these kinds of taxes become cash grabs. Canadians understand that. This is just more money for governments to spend on their own political priorities. That's what's happened now but, in Ed, British don't you Columbia. Believe it? Ed, I think you're a guy who believes in free markets. The problem with dumping pollution in the atmosphere and not paying for it is it doesn't send any signal to large polluters or individuals that you can't use the atmosphere as a garbage dump. You go to your local garbage dump, you pay a tipping fee. That's what we're doing. We're putting a price on carbon to correct for a market failure because it's wrong in an economy where you've got prices on production, prices on labor. There's no price for dumping atmospheric pollution that threatens our kids' future. You price it, but that's just the floor of measures you need to take. Elizabeth, and you don't have to tax Canadians to achieve the you're outcomes you're asking You're taxing, taxing for. pollution. You're taxing pollution and giving the money back to Canadians. That's, that's pretty a well-designed carbon tax. And that's the way it's worked in BC. You're, you're taxing Canadians.
And let me, let me just add, jump in for a quick second there, um, uh, Ed. The, uh, Canada is not Sweden, so I mean, it, in that sense, that, uh, that you know, Canada is, a, is an oil-producing country. Norway, it is, okay. it is going to feel the effects more than okay. a Sweden will. Eric, that Norway, just as Norway launched its North Sea oil operations, it put in place a carbon tax. Norway, by the way, modeled its handling of its oil development, and it's a big oil producer in the North Sea, on Peter Lougheed's plan for Alberta, which Ralph Klein forgot about. But as a result, Norway has a sovereign wealth fund equivalent to more than $1 million per citizen of Norway. And they had a carbon tax the whole time that they developed North Sea oil. So I'm sorry, you cannot say that just because Canada is in Sweden, we can't do carbon pricing and get it right. Because I, bottom I, line I, I is want, this, I, sorry. I want to get a thought in from you both before we run out of time on the uh, uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline project. Uh, Ed, maybe just uh, take your 20 seconds here as to why that project should go through to get, in a sense, the Canadian economy, I guess, running on all cylinders until the pivot can be made to a greener country. Millions and millions of Canadian jobs depend on our resource sector. We have to get our resources, including oil and gas, to markets beyond North America so we can get the maximum dollar for them. If we don't, we're cheating Canadians. This pipeline, Trans Mountain Pipeline, is in the national interest. And it is driving, it's going to drive economic prosperity. It can be done in a way that is environmentally responsible. Elizabeth May, you've got 15 seconds. Okay. Number one, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is all about shipping bitumen out of Canada. Bitumen is a product that we should be refining in Canada. At its height, the oil sands represented less than 2% of Canada's GDP. It, Canada's economy is not dependent on oil sands. We are dependent on getting good jobs for Canadians in industries that make sense. And shipping bitumen to other countries will both not get a better price and increase pollution risks for British Columbians and drive up greenhouse gases, it's not on. Ultimately, uh, the Canadian voter has to decide which of these arguments they, they are going to adopt. They want to hear and believe, I think, that we can have a strong economy and a cleaner environment. I think, Elizabeth May, you, you're saying we're not moving fast enough to it. You've got one seat out of 338. It's going to be hard to sell that with such a small percentage. Um, that probably is part of the issue facing Canadians as they go forward. Well, I think when people understand that we have a climate, I mean, Canadians know that the climate crisis is real. They want to see real action. We don't yet have a real climate plan from the Liberals, but we have much better intentions. Let's face it, nothing makes me sympathize with Trudeau Liberals like hearing them attacked by the Harper Conservatives. But the reality is this is not an issue that goes away, and we owe it to our kids to get it right. Ed Fast, the last few couple of seconds to you. Uh, I think Canadians are smart. They can figure out the impact a carbon price will have on them. They understand every time governments talk about taxes, at the end of the day, taxes become tax grabs and are spent on those governments' own political priorities rather than on the priorities of Canadians. So I think Canadians right. are understanding what this carbon tax entails and they're saying no. All right, Ed Fast uh, in Vancouver, or Burnaby actually, and uh, Elizabeth May here in our studio in Ottawa. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. North and South Korea have agreed all nuclear weapons should be removed from the Korean Peninsula. You've seen the remarkable pictures, two adversaries shaking hands across the Korean divide. Is it a lasting peace that is truly possible? Joining us from Vancouver is Paul Evans, School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia. Paul, you're a, a longtime expert in this. Are you 
stunned by what you've been witnessing over the last few weeks, and, and do you think it's real? Well, Eric, it's a, uh, a high-risk, high-profile, high-drama uh, roller coaster ride that has uh, entered a whole new phase in the in the last year, but particularly in the last month. There's an enormous emotional momentum build up around this now, and it appears that at least there's the the prospects of some significant diplomacy, some real discussions that have come out of the meeting of of. Uh, the North and the South that are going to spill over into the U.S.-North Korea discussions. It's a time of talking, and that's, that's a welcome sign in this roller coaster ride. Can Kim Jong-un be trusted, do you think? Well, it's hard to know who can be trusted in the tangle in Northeast Asia. Um, the North Koreans have uh, probably trust most the uh, Chinese, but even there, there's limits. They find Donald Trump uh, uh, fascinating and dangerous, but don't trust him. They may be able to build some trust with South Korea. And that's the game that's underway that where the emotions get into this uh, issue as well as the calculation of national interests. We're certainly seeing the reaction out of South Korea, out of the United States. Hard to read what's happening in North Korea. I, I wonder what your thoughts are about the North Korean military. They have only known one mindset for the last 60 years. Uh, will they stand down for this? Well, I think one of the things that um, uh, the leader, Kim, has done is uh, basically take control of the military. Uh, and while the image, what is uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the minds of that North Korean military leadership, uh, is not altogether clear, but I think at this moment there's every sign that he has control. There are many photos of him with the military leadership, and they're smiling and uh, uh, looking at him. So far, he looks confident like a man in command. And that was really clear when he was in China. So in general terms, I think the calculation is people can and must deal with the leader who probably is in control of, of factions in his own country. For, for a long time, experts uh, seem to believe that uh, the world would have to get accustomed and, uh, and accept a nuclearized North Korea. Do you think we're still headed in that direction, or will there be some kind of a mix of uh, expectations on this question? Well, it's really unclear what a denuclearized North Korea or Korean Peninsula is going to look like. There's going to be a lot of discussion around that in the months to come. Uh, but I think that what has changed is the willingness by all sides to pretend that a denuclearized Korean Peninsula is achievable. When we get into the short strokes of negotiation on verification, on um, what kinds of confidence-building measures will be put in place, there's going to be enormous complications, as we've seen with the United States uh, deal with Iran. So in this one, is it an illusion? It's not an illusion that uh, it's like a mirage, might be the best way to put it, out there that everyone sees at this moment. They see it slightly differently, but they're going to try to walk in that direction uh, as far as possible. Everybody sees the same mirage. Um, let me ask you about President Trump. Does he deserve credit for this? Uh, well, I don't think he deserves credit because of a, of a complex, ingenious strategy to move the North Koreans. But the Americans do deserve credit for 
partly ramping up the sanctions that are part of the reason the North Koreans are at the table, but also because they have been able to find a way to paper over their differences with the South Korean uh, president. I, I think. I think, Eric, that the real game here has changed. This, the dynamism now is what is coming out of North Korea, South Korea, and China. And that Mr. Trump now is playing a little bit of catch up. Uh, but American diplomacy has been able to finally get into the ring where that conversation, uh, that real discussion with the other four players, the other three big players, is in underway. And so for that, they deserve credit but not for uh, being the single factor that has led us in the direction of, uh, of a peace process. Canada has been very disconnected from North Korea for some period of time. Is there now an opportunity for us, either diplomatically or economically, to re-engage? Well, curiously, the one thing we're doing right now is sending one of our airplanes, which just arrived in Okinawa, as part of a monitoring mission of the smuggling that goes into North Korea. So for the first time in a long time, we have actually a military asset engaged. But I think the bigger question is if, if, the, if the clouds part a little bit more, more sunshine comes in, what can Canada do? And I think some of that is going to be building on the humanitarian assistance and the educational connections we have with North Korea. Ultimately, the solution to the challenge of the peninsula is integrating North Korea into the international system. And in past years, in many countries, and 20 years ago with North Korea, Canada tried to play that role. We, if our government is interested and can show the independence of mind, there's a possibility we can prepare for that role now, recognizing the moment is not quite right yet, but maybe just over the horizon. Paul Evans of UBC, thank you for joining us today. A real pleasure being with you. As the contentious NAFTA negotiations resume tomorrow in Washington, what happens when an international trade deal becomes a political bombshell? Joining us now is former Stephen Harper Chief of Staff Ian Brody. His new book is At the Center of Government, The Prime Minister and the Limits of Political Power. Ian, thanks for joining us. So I'm just going to start with uh, the so-called NAFTA gate because the Chief of Staff never wants to be the story, but you were in the, there for a bit. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, you had a conversation with a reporter. At some time later, information was leaked, not by you, uh, but candidate Barack Obama was reassuring Canadian officials that all his rhetoric about, uh, about uh, NAFTA was really just that, political rhetoric. Um, but getting that out uh, created a cross-border dust-up. What, what are your regrets about that incident? Well, look, uh, Eric, good to talk to you. Uh, I tucked this into the end of the book uh, because it comes to the end of my time uh, in, uh, in government. At the time, remember that uh, Senator Obama and Senator Clinton were battling for the Democratic nomination. Uh, they were both casting great aspersions on NAFTA, which had become a bit of a political tradition in the United States. And, uh, but both of their campaign teams uh, sort of assuring people off to the side or reassuring people off to the side that this was just campaign rhetoric, don't worry about it, we're not going to blow up uh, the North American free trade space. And uh, my name got attached uh, to this as somebody uh, leaked it in the, in the U.S. in order to try and, I assume, try and move the results of the Ohio primary in one direction or another. When it became public in Canada, of course, I was uh, criticized for trying to uh, sway a U.S. election. I I'd spent my whole time in politics trying to downplay disputes in the Canada-U.S. Uh, relationship. But forward 10 years now, 
I think we can see that over the course of uh, more than a decade, almost since the signing of NAFTA now, uh, both the Canadians and Mexicans uh, have been quite tolerant as American politicians have uh, lambasted NAFTA on the campaign trail and then, and then governed differently. And only until Trump comes along and finds that because of all of the past efforts, he really has to make an effort to try and show that he's going to beat up on the NAFTA agreement, call it the worst trade agreement in, in history and so forth. Now we see that the, the cost of that 20 years of, of tolerating these uh, uh, attacks on the agreement in the United States, how it's paid off. Your, uh, your book, At the Center of Government, the Prime Minister and the Limits of Political Power, I think the conventional wisdom, is, here in Ottawa anyway, is that when you have a majority government, you have an effective dictatorship. Um, how do you see it differently from that? Yeah, I think we've had this idea now for at least uh, 20 years that Parliament is dead, uh, that even within Cabinet, power has been centralized around the Prime Minister and a few of his closest uh, uh, ministers or political aides. And certainly before I got uh, into politics, I was an academic before I went to work for Mr. Harper, uh, these were the sorts of academic theories that I accepted uh, as well. My book is an effort to try to paint that picture with different colors, that trying to run the government of Canada is itself a complicated task, that parliament matters a great deal more than we give it credit for in the standard story, that even a government with a majority uh, in the House of Commons has to be careful about how it manages parliamentary business, and that that put, puts real restrictions on what a prime minister can do, even with a substantial majority of government, as Mr. Harper ended up with. And yet, uh, by the end of his terms, uh, uh, critics would say he was wielding too much power, whether it was omnibus bills or, or messaging that was muzzling any other sort of message except that what came out of the center. Is that, the, is that what happens? Prime ministers simply try to find all the levers they can to, uh, to have that power? Yes, because politics is political. It's uh, partisan. It's a competition between uh, political parties. Uh, Mr. Harper played that game uh, as well as uh, anyone in Canadian politics, uh, better than I think uh, uh, many of the practitioners uh, of the art have played. Mr. Trudeau does the same thing. Uh, politics is a tough group sport. But the idea that there's just a uh, uh, prime minister can come up with some legislation and have it passed immediately through the House of Commons if he wants to with a majority, I just don't think that's true. I don't think that's ever been true. And uh, the book tries to put the other side on that. Uh, during Mr. Harper's time in office, there was a flowering of private members' legislation by both conservative and opposition MPs. More private members' bills passed during his time in office than ever before. Uh, a flourishing of, uh, of parliamentary opposition to the government, which is fair game as well. I think the idea that somehow Parliament's golden age was in the past uh, is wrong. I think the Parliament's golden age has been over the last 10 years and we continue to live through it today. Anything that from a Prime Minister's office perspective of learning things the hard way that, you're so, that you saw then that maybe you're seeing even now in the Justin Trudeau uh, Prime Minister's office? Look, your biggest enemy in politics is time, uh, because you've got, if you have a majority government, four years between elections or thereabouts. The day that you're elected, it looks like you're going to have time forever uh, if you win a majority. When I was chief of staff, we had a minority government, so we had to begin to produce results as a government and to show that publicly almost the day that we got elected. And we were cognizant of that every day that we were in office when I was there, because so we, we didn't know if we were going to have to go to the polls the next day. You get a majority government, you think, I've got four years to do all sorts of things, so we'll start with uh, two years of consultations and see how things go, and we'll try to calm the waters for the first two years. 
actually trying to get something done and through the system in Ottawa is quite difficult. Four years moves quickly. Yep. And I think what we see now is uh, two, two years of Mr. Trudeau's government with lots of consultations. Now difficult decisions have to be made and they're already starting to think ahead to the next federal election. In a sense, All right. time, has, time has run out on them. All right. Well, look, uh, you have some uh, behind-the-scenes insights in your book um, at the Centre of Government, the Prime Minister and the Limits of Power. Uh, thank you for joining us and talking to us about it today. Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and tune in again next week for another West Block. <laughs>